Good morning. If you do not know me, my name is Pastor John. I'm so glad that you're here today worshiping with us. And as was mentioned, I'm also thankful for those of you who are watching us online. Well, today I want to talk about surprises. Surprises. A surprise is just something unexpected that happens. And a surprise can be a bad surprise or it can be a good surprise. I was trying to reflect on my life. Uh, a bad surprise, I remember, was about two months before my wife Christine and I were going to get married. Uh, she gave me a phone call that she had been in a car accident. She had been rear-ended and had a really bad concussion and some whiplash. And so, of course, that changed everything right then. Um, had to rush to go get her. And then we, of course, had to deal with a car being totaled, but then she also had to deal with lingering concussion effects and whiplash effects that lasted for years. That was a very bad surprise. But of course, there's also good surprises in our lives. I remember just a couple of months ago in our Christmas Eve service, I was surprised when my sister, who lives overseas, uh, came here for our Christmas Eve service, showed up, and I didn't know she was coming. She came around the corner. I said, what are you doing here? Because I wasn't expecting to see her at all. That, that was a good surprise. But today, we're really talking about the best surprise there is, and that surprise is God's grace, His undeserved grace, favor, blessing, forgiveness, the salvation that we can know through him. That's a surprise that cannot be compared to anything else. You may say, is that really a surprise, Pastor John? We're in a church. Of course you're talking about what God does for us. But his grace is a surprise because it's unexpected. God is God. He is so different from who we are. He doesn't owe us anything. He doesn't have to do anything for us. He's not in our debt in any way, shape, or form. Yet, he chooses to surprise us with his grace. Now, when that happens, that may catch us off guard. We may not like it initially when we hear about God's grace. Perhaps we may see somebody else experiencing God's grace, and we may be shocked at that. But still, God's grace is always a good surprise, even if we don't see it that way at first. Sometimes we struggle with seeing the way grace comes to us or to someone else, or the place grace is seen, or even the person who receives God's grace. But if we let it, God's surprising grace can point us closer to Him, can draw us closer to Him. Because Jesus compassionately heals and satisfies us so that we can know His surprising grace. And today, we're going to see how. Normally, I would have you turn to the passage of Scripture we're going to be. We'd read it together before I pray. But since we're going to look at a longer section of Scripture today, I'm just going to pray and we'll read it as we go for this morning. So let me pray. Lord, thank you for your surprising grace. Thank you for this unexpected favor and mercy that you show us by saving us from sin and bringing us toward yourself. Thank you, God, that you have such great compassion for us a compassion that heals us and provides for us, a compassion that satisfies our needs, especially our need for you. As we just sang, God, we need you. Oh, we need you. As we look at your word this morning, God, help us to see all the ways your surprising grace comes to us and comes to those around us, perhaps in a surprising way or a surprising place or 
even to people who may surprise us, but you show your grace and mercy. May we see it, may we see you and praise you for the salvation you give us through your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. Part of the reason I'm doing it this way is because we've been studying through the Gospel of Mark, seeking to answer this question, who is Jesus? And over the past couple of weeks, we've kind of bounced around a little bit. So this is our get back on track week. I'm going to cover a couple things that we've talked about this for, before, kind of a review, and then also talk about one new passage that will get us moving in the right direction. And so with that in mind, we're actually going to start back in chapter 7. We were here last week, and last week we were talking about some interactions Jesus was having with the Pharisees in Mark 7. These were religious leaders, and they didn't like what he was doing because their community valued ritual cleanliness. They valued avoiding contamination. And probably the most contaminated thing that you could do would be to touch or interact with a Gentile, a non-Jew. But Jesus challenged this worldview. We saw last week in Mark 7, 14 and 15, that Jesus called the people to him and he said to them, hear me all of you and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. We talked about this last week. It's not the things outside that pollute our soul, but it's our hearts, our sinful, opposed to God. They lead us away from Him. And so if we want to be right with God, we shouldn't focus on following a series of external rules of just avoiding certain outside things, but instead we should beg God to change our hearts. That was kind of what we talked about last week. And then what Mark does in the rest of chapter 7 into chapter 8 is he illustrates this for us. And we're looking at this illustration today. He shows us through what Jesus actually did, how Jesus put this into practice. The way Jesus did it was he served, he ministered to, and he blessed those Gentiles, those non-Jews. He had compassion on those people who his culture told him, you should stay away from them. But Jesus instead went to them with surprising grace. We see this first in chapter 7 in two stories of Jesus compassionately healing Gentiles. Out of his compassion, he heals Gentiles, those who are far from God. First, Jesus gives grace to the daughter of a humble Gentile woman who comes before him. We talked about this passage a couple weeks ago when we had a joint service with the Nepalese church that meets here. Let me read that passage again for us, though. This is Mark 7, 24 through 30. Remember, this is coming right after Jesus is saying, it's not about the outside, it's about the inside. And the very next verse says, from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now, the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first. It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left 
your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. When we talked about that passage, we talked about how Jesus shows grace to those who humbly come to him. But today I want to focus especially on who she is. She is a Gentile woman. She is the one coming, and God's grace goes even to her. No matter who a person is or where they are from, God's surprising grace can meet them. The passage right after that speaks about Jesus healing a man who was deaf and who had a speech impediment. Again, someone who seems to be a Gentile. Let's look at verses 31 through 37. It says, again, the very next verse, Then he, Jesus, returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee. And it seems like he crossed the sea to the other side, to the region of the Decapolis, the ten cities, a Gentile area. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he, Jesus, put his fingers into his ears, after spitting, touched his tongue, and he, looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. This was a passage that Pastor Tom preached on two weeks ago. He did a great job looking at two key words about the crowd's astonishment at Jesus and how they begged him to heal this man. Today I want to focus just, just for a minute, because I really want to move on to the next passage, to look at the compassion that he shows to this Gentile man. In particular, look at verse 33, where it, it's kind of oddly phrased. It says, he took him aside, put his fingers into his ears after spitting, touched his tongue. What's going on there? We don't know for sure, but perhaps since he's deaf, Jesus is kind of using a form of sign language to care for this man. He's saying, I'm going to heal your ears. I'm going to make it so that you are able to speak. But what's also interesting about that is he is touching this man. And if this man is a Gentile, that's a serious violation of the tradition of the day. They didn't touch the Gentiles. They had nothing to do with them. But Jesus cares for this man. He didn't care about that tradition. He was bringing God's healing grace to him. We also read in verse 34, more of this compassion. Jesus looked up to heaven. It says, he sighed. He sighed out of compassion for this man who was suffering. He sighed out of grief for the effects of sin in the world. And then he miraculously healed this man. And this Gentile man who shouldn't know anything about God instead receives the blessing of God's grace in what's fulfilling the Old Testament, actually. The Old Testament prophet said that the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Lame man shall leap like the deer, the tongue of the mute sing for joy. He's experiencing a little bit of this. Now, I know Pastor Tom's going to unpack this passage in particular a little bit more in a few weeks. So for now, let me also direct our attention to verse 37 in our text. How do they respond to this compassion? They say, well, well, they're astonished, and they say, he has done all things well. Again, this Gentile area, this Gentile crowd realizes that Jesus does all things well. They did not expect to receive God's grace, and yet they did. 
He heals those who are spiritually deaf to His truth, who are unable to hear or understand who He is. He enables them to speak, to proclaim faith in Him, to come to know Him in faith and trust. This come and experience too. If we come to Jesus, if we turn from our sin, our rebellion, and we say, Jesus, I am coming to you, I am trusting you, we experience that compassion. After all, I don't know every single person here, but I'm just going to go out on a limb that almost all of us, close to 100% of us, we were not born a part of the Hebrew people, but yet, just like these people we're reading about here, we can experience Christ's compassion. We can experience God's grace and have confidence in Him. He has compassion on us. As Pastor J.C. Ryle wrote, he said, let us remember it as we look forward to the days yet to come. We know not what they may be, whether these days be bright or dark, many or few, but we know that we are in the hands of Him who does all things well. This is the one that we can know. But that's not all Jesus does for Gentiles. He not only heals them, but he also compassionately satisfies these Gentiles. He compassionately satisfies them. Now we're going into new territory, into chapter 8, which we'll read in a minute. But as we read it, you may get a sense of kind of a deja vu as you look at it. You may say, this seems really familiar because this is a story about Jesus feeding 4,000 people. You may say, 4,000, that sounds odd, because I I thought I remembered something about Jesus feeding 5,000 people. Well, yes, that's right. We actually read about that uh, like a month or two ago from chapter 6. Jesus fed a crowd of at least 5,000 people. Uh, Josh Wines was preaching that day. He spoke about how the Lord satisfies us. And in kind of Christian culture, we're more familiar with that miracle. Oh, Jesus healing the 5,000. We're We've heard of that. We're familiar with it. But we may not realize there's actually a story of a second feeding. We're looking at it today in Mark 8. We can also read about it in Matthew chapter 15. Now, when some people are reading the Bible, they look at that and they say, well, these two stories are very, very similar. Whoever wrote this book, whether it's Mark or someone else, must have made a mistake, must have heard this story and, and put it in. They must have copied it twice or something like that. There must be a mistake here. And yes, these stories are very similar, but that does not mean that they're talking about the same event. The truth is there was actually two miraculous feedings, and there's several reasons why we know this. The first is there's some pretty pronounced differences, particularly in the numbers in this story. That first story, that first feeding, says Jesus fed a crowd of 5,000 men implying there's also women and children. This story speaks about feeding 4,000 people. In that first story, they try to gather what food they have, and they find five loaves and two fish. In this story, we'll read, they find seven loaves and a few small fish. There's also a difference in the number of days the crowd had been with Jesus. In that first story, they'd been with him just that day. In this story, we read they've been with him three days. The location is different. One is in Jewish territory. This is in Gentile territory. And the result is different. After everyone eats and is satisfied, in that first story, they have 12 baskets left over. In this story, they have seven leftover baskets. 
And the differences I, I want to draw our attention to particularly are the, that location, Jewish area versus Gentile area, and those leftovers. Now, we don't want to read too much into numbers, but perhaps those 12 leftover baskets in a Jewish area represented the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 people groups that made up that people. And perhaps this seven, this complete number seven, talks about God's grace for everyone else. So these numbers are different. But if that's not enough to convince you, Jesus himself says that there were two separate feedings. If you just look a little bit further down the page into Mark 8, look at verses 19 and 20. Jesus speaks to the disciples and says, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. And when I took the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. Jesus says these were two separate events. Okay, maybe we're willing to acknowledge there's two, but we still ask why. Why are these two stories that are so very, very similar here? Why have two of them? Well, it's to make it abundantly clear who Jesus is, what he can do for us, and what that means for our lives. He shows compassion for us. He satisfies our needs. So let's look at this second miracle from chapter 8, verses 1 through 10. The story just picks up again with what's happening here. The last place we left him, he's in the, 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 the Decapolis, that Gentile area. He's still there. So this Gentile crowd, this multitude gathers, and they listen to Jesus for three days. Verse 1 says, In those days when again a great crowd had gathered, they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him. And he says that he has compassion, deep affection for the people of the crowd. There's this compassion again, just like that needy Syrophoenician mother who came to him for his daughter, just like that man who was deaf and mute, just like that crowd of 5,000 people when he fed them. Back in chapter 6, again, he has compassion. But this time in particular, he doesn't want them to faint or collapse on the way home. Look at verses 2 and 3. He, Jesus says to his disciples, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. He saw their needs just as he sees our needs even now. He's concerned about their hunger, but he's also concerned about something more because he knows they have a spiritual need too. Let's look at another time Jesus had compassion. This is in Matthew 9. It says that when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus looks at people and he sees that they are alone, separated from God, in need of his guidance, and that provokes his compassion. As Pastor J.C. Ryle put it, he, Jesus, he has compassion even on those who are not his people, the faithless, the graceless, the followers of this world. He feels tenderly for them, though they know it not. He died for them, though they care little for what he did on the cross. He would receive them graciously and pardon them freely if they would only repent and believe on him. Jesus has compassion. But his disciples don't know what to do with this request. They 
No, they don't have enough bread in this place they are, this desolate, remote wilderness area. They say in verse 4, his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? They seem to have forgotten what happened before or at least have not grasped the point of it. They only see a problem. They forget what Jesus has done. And if we're being critical, we can say, how could they possibly have forgotten that? Oh, but how often do we do the same? We know the great things God does for us, how He's with us, how He comforts us, provides for us. Yet, as soon as a problem comes, we forget what He has done for us in the past. Maybe that's what's happening to the disciples here. If we want to look a little more charitably toward them, perhaps they're just expressing that there's nothing we can do to feed these people because we don't have enough food for them. They're just acknowledging they cannot meet this need. They'd seen Jesus feed a greater number of people, but maybe they still didn't completely trust him. They had not fully grasped who he is. Again, the same thing we do. We know Jesus is God. We know that he can provide for us, yet we can often be hard-headed and hard-hearted against that. We need repetition, and so the story is here. But now they're going to learn that with God, nothing is impossible. So our text tells us that Jesus asked, how many loaves do you have? And they say, seven. They have seven loaves of bread. As I talked about before, we don't want to get carried away with numbers, but seven is also often a number of completeness in Scripture. Perhaps it indicates that God's perfect kingdom is going beyond the Jews to the Gentiles too. As scholar Danny Aiken said, Jesus has a plan. He wants us to see his love, his concern for Gentiles as well as Jews. Yes, he is the long-expected Jewish Messiah. He is also the Savior of the world. Jesus is the living bread for the Gentiles too. And this miracle shows people being brought to God. And so what does Jesus do? Well, he gives thanks to God in prayer as he always did, and then he starts breaking the bread bit by bit. He gives it to his disciples, and they set the food before the people. They also find some small fish, really like sardines, and they pass them out too with prayer. Verses 6 and 7, he, Jesus, directed the crowd to sit on the ground. He took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them, gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. Jesus gives food. He prays more than once, maybe trying to teach these Gentiles to give thanks to God because the result is miraculous. The result is these 4,000 people eat and they're satisfied. They're filled. They have as much as they want. Verses 8 and 9 says they ate and were satisfied. And after they were satisfied, they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full there were about 4,000 people, and then and only then did Jesus send them away. Well, these Gentiles learned that this Jesus can provide beyond satisfaction. What we need, He provides. He gives us everything we need when we need it. Now, it may not be according to our timing, but in His timing, in His way, He provides. It may not come exactly when we want it, but it comes when He wills. And just like God did in the Old Testament through the prophet Elisha, God gives bread from a small amount to many people. Here again, the point is that Jesus is our satisfaction. He is the bread of heaven. 
Jesus himself says this in the Gospel of John. He says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. What he means is that whether we're Jew or Gentile, we all need him. He died so that we could be saved. He came to earth, lived a perfect life, and died for our sin and rebellion. And if we know him, then we find grace and compassion. Our spiritual needs, our deep longing can only be meant, can only be met in him. That's what we're talking about satisfaction here. The satisfaction that he provides is the needs that we have, particularly our need to know God, our need to be right with God, our need to fill that emptiness in us. There are other things you can use to try to fill that emptiness within you. You can uh, try to medicate it away with drugs or alcohol or overindulgence in in food or, or pleasure. You can try that, but it won't solve that problem. You can try to find a way to get rid of that, that need. You could use a self-help book. You could follow a health or wellness social media influencer. You could listen to every podcast about how to meet the needs you feel in your life. You could check out other religions. Maybe other religions offer the solution. If I try a couple, maybe that will provide what I'm looking for there. I'm here to tell you that even if you try all of that, you will not find what you need. I know that's a really bold claim, but that's the claim that Scripture makes. You can try everything else, but Jesus alone satisfies. It's what He came to do. He came to make our hearts right with God. He satisfies our needs, and what we need is a relationship with him. He satisfies those spiritual needs. He also, though, satisfies physical needs. He's there for his people. Again, the book of Isaiah says that the one who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, he will dwell on the heights. His place of defense will be the fortresses of rocks. And look what it says, his bread will be given him, his water will be sure. Friends, even though one time we may have been far from God, if we know him, he has compassion on us. He provides for us. Again, there's these seven baskets left over. Christ is sufficient for the needs of people. And he calls us to tell others about him, his compassion, his satisfying grace. The last verse in our text kind of wraps up the story. Jesus gets back in a boat and he heads west, or I guess as I'm facing you, west <laughs> toward the other side of the Sea of Galilee, back to Jewish territory. That's what we'll look at next week. A little spoiler alert, he's not really welcome there. He, as soon as he gets there, the Pharisees are waiting there to oppose him because they do not understand who he is. They can't see what this compassion and grace he's showing really means. Now, I know we spent a lot of time looking at what's particularly there. I wanted to do that so then we can answer the question, so what? What does all of that have to do with us? We talked about two stories we already read, and then we talked about another one that sounds like another one we read. Why are we talking about the same thing again? What is the point of this? Well, the point is there's a great lesson in these similarities between these stories, and that lesson is that God's grace is surprising. His grace is surprising. How is it surprising? Well, uh, three ways came to my mind. One is His grace comes to us in a surprising way. In these stories, we see God's grace coming in a surprising way. 
the one we just read about this feeding. I, I know it's the second time we've read about a feeding miracle, but let's not lose sight of the fact that God used seven small loaves of bread to feed 4,000 people. That, that's miraculous. That's incredible. It's showing us God can do a great thing even through something small. The pastor, British pastor Charles Spurgeon said, Brothers and sisters, who knows what may come out of seven loaves and a few small fishes? After all, only barley loaves and those few small fishes were in the possession of those apostles. But Jesus found them and began to work with them. Friends, we should never lose sight of or doubt the fact that God can work with even something small, even little faith in Him, even a small group of people, even a tiny gift. God is often pleased to use those little things to change the world. After all, the story we're reading is about one guy, Jesus, and 12 followers, and these men would change the world. The largest faith in the world today came from this small group. And we are here today, this morning, because of that small beginning. Friends, God's surprising grace can use the little that you offer for His glory. Maybe you say, I, I just have this one, I only have a little talent in this one area, that's all I do. God can use that for His glory. I may have an ability here, but that's a little thing. No, nobody cares about that. Well, maybe God can use that for His glory. Or perhaps talking about giving, you're like, I really don't have a lot to do, but God, a lot to give, but God can use that for him. His grace comes in a surprising way. What we also see in these stories that God's grace not only comes in a surprising way, but it works in surprising places. His grace works in surprising places. It shows up where we least expect it. The places maybe we've forgotten about or that we've written off can be where he does a great work. That's what we saw here. In Jesus' day, the Jews, his people, they didn't care about the Gentiles. They only focused on themselves. They believed God's going to reject the Gentiles. It doesn't matter what happens there on the other side of the sea. But we saw today, Jesus did several big miracles, if not more than what we have here in Gentile territory. He's fulfilling God's promise to draw the non-Jewish nations to him so that all nations, all peoples would be able to worship him. We read in Psalm 67, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. It says to God, you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let all people praise you. I don't have it particularly up here today, but we've seen before looking at Revelation, the very last book of the Bible, that there will come a day that people from every people group, every corner of the world will be before God, worshiping Him. And that means we should not write off any place as beyond the scope of God's grace. We should not write off any person as beyond the reach of God's grace. There are faithful followers of Jesus who continue to serve him even in the hard places. There are churches and followers of God in places like Afghanistan, in China, in Russia, even in war-torn Ukraine. There are followers of God faithfully serving him. It's hard in those places, sure, absolutely, but God's grace can thrive in surprising places. 
What about thinking a little closer to home? Uh, As I was preparing this message this week, I came across two stories about one place. And it reminded me that even places we may be tempted to forget can be where God's grace is seen. So again, I read two stories this week about the city of Portland, Oregon. The first one you may have read, it was in the news, it was talking about Walmart. Walmart, the company, has decided to close all their stores within the city of Portland and, and pull out of the city. They're doing that because their profits are down, also because there's some issues with shoplifting. They're saying, no, we're done, we're leaving Portland. The other story I read, though, was if you were here last Sunday, we handed out a prayer guide for you about our Annie Armstrong Easter offering. And it had eight days of prayer you could pray for people who are doing God's work around our country. And I don't know if you noticed, but one of those couples in that story was a couple who is planting churches in Portland, Oregon. In fact, they've planted two churches in Portland already and are looking to start more churches, draw more followers to God in that city. And I was really struck by the difference between those stories. One is a story of of tension or despair. Why is this happening? What's going on? All kinds of political debates, all kinds of other things you could say. But the other story reveals God's surprising grace. When the world pulls out, said, nope, we're done. We're not doing anything here. That is when God surprises us by advancing his kingdom. It's a humbling reminder to us that God works in places that may surprise us. It's also a humbling reminder that he's not obligated to use us. He's not obligated to work through East Shore Baptist Church. We're not essential for his purposes, but it is his pleasure to use us now as he will. So we're not essential. He doesn't have to use us, but friends, he can use us. So let's pray for his surprising grace to impact our community and to impact more areas where his name is not known. So God's grace comes in surprising ways. We see it working in surprising places. But one last truth we can recognize about God's surprising grace is that it works for surprising people. And by works for, I mean it works on behalf of surprising people. Again, Jesus spent his focus on the Jewish people. When that woman comes to him, he gives that example of saying about the children's bread on the table, they need to be fed first. Jesus focused on the Jews first and foremost. But even though he said that, we've just read a couple stories about how he spent a surprising amount of time healing, serving, showing compassion to Gentile people. All of chapter 7, the story we read in chapter 8 today, they reveal his work among those who were thought to be enemies of God and his people. He was introducing a powerful reality that changed what it meant to be a follower of God. In Acts chapter 11, Peter has a vision. He realizes that they should be spreading the the gospel, God's word to Gentiles, and he's explaining that to the rest of the church. And this is what he says in chapter 11, verse 17. Again, Peter, if then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And then the rest of the church, when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Stories like this show us that we can be surprised by the people who are reached by God's grace, who receive his grace. The truth is people maybe we don't like, 
people were uncomfortable with. They may find God's mercy. They may receive the same blessing that we do if we know God. In fact, God seems to enjoy challenging those who profess to know God by the others who come to know Him. He surprises us with how far His grace really extends. Whatever group of people you think of, oh, they're they're just really different. They're just other. They're just different. I don't have anything to do with them. They can receive God's grace too. As Pastor Spurgeon put it, God is never at a loss for agents. The most superstitious, the most ignorant, the most infidel, the most blasphemous, the most degraded may yet be made champions of his truth. Therefore, let no man's heart fail him. The bread shall be multiplied and the people shall be fed. God will build his kingdom. Jesus will bring people to himself. His Holy Spirit will change hearts and minds. And so we should live in light of that reality. That's why Jesus also said in Matthew 5, you may have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He calls his people to show the same compassion that he shows, to show the same love that he shows. Now, yes, Jesus changes lives. He changes the behaviors of those who know him but we should not doubt the power of his surprising grace. So friends, we've kind of caught up to where we were before. We're kind of on the same page now. We're moving much closer toward the midpoint of Mark. And just to look ahead in a couple weeks, the whole time we've been talking about this book, we've been trying to answer this question, who is Jesus? And in the middle of this book, we're given the answer. And right now, we're kind of just assembling all the evidence, putting the pieces together until we get the answer very soon. Today, the evidence we've assembled is this Jesus is a compassionate healer. He's a compassionate satisfier. Yes, he satisfies physical needs, but he also satisfies most of all our spiritual needs. And the way he does that is by giving surprising grace that works in surprising ways, in surprising places, and for surprising people. So let me ask you, Have you experienced that grace? Do you know this Savior? Have you been surprised by who God is? Has that surprise leave sin, leave your rebellion against God, and instead believe and trust in Him? My hope and prayer is that as you hear God's Word, you will turn from sin and you will trust and believe in Jesus. And if you have done that, if you do know Him, then Continue to remember his surprising grace. Let it continue to surprise you with how great and big our God is. And when his grace surprises you, then praise him, for he alone is worthy.